News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are down to the final two weeks of the campaign trail here, and things have gotten very interesting. You've got more protesters causing more problems on the campaign trail for Liberal leader Justin Trudeau, sparking questions about tighter security and why it's not there. And now you've got Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole as the perceived frontrunner, and that's bringing its own set of issues too. Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken is with the Conservative campaign and joins us now. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. How has the Conservative campaign dealt with this kind of change in status? You know what? It really hasn't changed. And maybe that's one of the reasons that uh, Aaron O'Toole finds himself possibly going into these debates as, wait for it, the front runner. I mean, it, it, there's statistical ties all over the place that these pollsters are putting out, but a lot of them showing uh, in B.C., certainly the Conservatives in front uh, in a tight three-way race, uh, leading in Ontario, and as they say, you know, maybe one or two points up. So, so what's going on here? Well, <clears throat> one thing, I think the Conservatives have run, I would call a safe campaign, and that's not to denigrate it um you know don't take a chance if you don't need to uh they've run a campaign with some interesting policies and we can talk maybe a bit more about that and i think aaron o'toole has successfully moved his party to the center and that's the sweet spot for canadian politics be closer to the center if you can there's more votes there than there are on the fringes and uh, as a result um well lo and behold he's 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 leading and lo and behold the liberal leader justin trudeau is firing bombs now at uh, the o'toole campaign there's none of this sunny way stuff that we saw from trudeau in the last two campaigns where they try to take the high road and not attack oh they're attacking there was three uh attack ads out from the liberals over the weekend all aimed at uh, o'toole yesterday trudeau in uh, where was he welland ontario uh just you know said Tr- o'toole's a liar he'll say anything to win uh, you know so here we go debate yeah. week's coming up and it's going to be a tussle yeah let's talk about the saying anything to win issue because i know that was dogging your no tool on the weekend uh, mm-hmm. o- over this whole perceived flip-flop on the gun control issue saying something different that was in the campaign platform what was that all about <laughs> yeah so this this you're right so let's start with the platform the platform that existed last week because he's changed the platform i've yeah. never seen this before so the platform last week essentially said that a conservative government government would repeal uh, or overturn a list of restricted or banned weapons, mostly uh, assault-style guns. Uh, they repeal that uh, and, I guess, replace it with their own. That was in the platform. And then on Thursday in the first French-language debate, O'Toole said something different. And by the time it got out in your neck of the woods, he was in Vancouver, I think, on, on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, he O'Toole confirmed that the uh, conservative government would leave all banned guns banned. That wasn't what was in the platform, though. And so yesterday, he's back in Ottawa, and he, he got some more grilling about guns, and Trudeau was firing at, at him for this flip-flop. And then they changed the platform. It now says there's a little footnote on page 46, if you want to look it up. It says, all banned guns will remain banned. So essentially, the conservatives are now saying, uh, what the liberals did, we're going to stick with that. O'Toole is promising to strike an independent, nonpartisan panel uh, to review that list, but that's as far as he wants to go. So, uh, yep, it's a flip-flop, and uh, and O'Toole is being criticized by Trudeau, and this we get to, he'll say anything to win. I would expect Trudeau to come at uh, O'Toole on this topic in a couple of days. That said, Simi, in all the polling I've seen from all pollsters, when you ask, what, what's your top-of-mind issue? 
gun control is not a top-of-mind issue for a lot of voters. What's a top-of-mind issue for a lot of voters? Well, it's the, usually the first week of school in most parts yeah. of the country. And I think a lot of parents still worried about COVID, the health of their kids, and so on. But right now, as, as Tom Mulcair, the former NDP leader, he had an op-ed today. He says, here we go with the phony war between the Liberals and the Conservatives over guns when Canadians may, and in my view, I think, there are other issues that they're probably a little more concerned about. Yeah. Is this a, just a perception issue? Do you think that um, you know, Aaron O'Toole has had great success, clearly pulling himself so close in mm-hmm. the polls here by appearing to be more moderate? Right. So there's there, there's a few things here. The, the liberals, whenever they get in trouble like this, they, there's a trifecta of wedge issues that they want to use. Yeah. Gun control is one. Then they'll accuse, and they have accused the conservatives of wanting to change abortion laws. And then they'll accuse O'Toole, and you've seen this already, of being in favor of two-tier health care. O'Toole's got an answer for that. You'll see that uh, uh, in the, the debates. But O'Toole has been really aiming at worker-friendly policies. We know that's the traditional territory, certainly for the NDP. The liberals were talking about what they did with the Serbs and wage subsidies. But the O'Toole campaign, they spent a whole week in the second week talking about how they'll protect worker pensions in the event of a corporate bankruptcy. They'll tell big corporations that they have to have a seat on the board of directors for a workers' representative. They're ready to double sick leave from 26 weeks, paid sick leave 26 weeks to 52 weeks and yesterday O'Toole was talking about doubling what's called the uh, the workers benefit it's on your tax form uh, that's for low income uh, waged people and that would be about an extra 2800 bucks a year in the pockets of some families that's all worker friendly policies that the conservatives absolutely aiming at a unionized member their supporters and in doing so i think the conservatives may have inoculated themselves against some of the charges the liberals will have that, oh, my God, scary conservatives, because that typically results when the liberals do that, is nervous new Democrats then start to run back to the liberals. And we haven't seen that yet. The Jagmeet Singh and the NDP are holding in the polls, and I think new Democrats are looking at O'Toole and go, he's not Stephen Harper, he's not that scary, look what he wants to do for workers. So it's a really interesting dynamic right now uh, on that particular sort of uh, demographic segment. It sure is. So I guess they're gearing up, then there's two debates this week, is that right? One French language debate, one English language debate. You got it. Wednesday in French, Thursday in English. The Wednesday, the French one, that's the consortium doing it. I know some people said they were frustrated they couldn't see the French one because it was a private broadcaster in French. There was no translation. So the Wednesday one in French, there should be some translation service. Certainly we'll be carrying that on our, on our website. And then Thursday is the one and only, uh, English language debate. So a lot of, there's a lot on the line Thursday. All right. It's going to be an interesting week. David, thank you. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. That's David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. He is with the Conservative campaign this week. And, of course, it is another big week as we get, what, two weeks away from voting. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about what's going on at your house today, and that is getting kids back to school. Maybe for you, it's getting back to work. Well, there's been a lot of concerns about the return of this school year. It's a process that starts today. Kids aren't actually going to spend a whole lot of time in the classroom, but for teachers, support staff, and all of that, it is back to school day one. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Now, we know that the BC Teachers Federation has said there is a, you know, quote, cloud hanging over this school year because of the fourth wave of the pandemic. But we want to know how school districts are adjusting to this. And in particular, the District of Surrey, because, you know, last year was an incredibly challenging year for them. So joining us now is Jordan Tinier, Surrey School District Superintendent. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. 
Good morning, Noah. Happy to be here. Does it feel a bit like Groundhog Day to you, Jordan? Because it feels like here we are a year later, new school year, still talking about this COVID issue. Yeah, yeah. Third school year. It seems unreal that here we go again, but uh, yes, it does. Do you have concerns about this year? Oh, sure. There are always concerns. And, you know, with the concerns, though, I have a lot of excitement. I, you know, I'm. it's always unique on every opening day, and it's, it's wonderful to see the kids back. But, of course, uh, you know, we're still in COVID. We're still not normal. We still have all these precautions we need to take and all these routines. And so it, it's, it's going to be different once again. I'm hopeful as the year progresses that uh, it starts to feel more and more like it, like it used to. Now, last year was particularly difficult for Surrey, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a big year for sure. We, we had more than our fair share of cases. So how is that kind of informing what you're going to do this year? Um, I think the biggest change this year is, you know, we, we've learned a lot. We, we know absolutely that what happens in our schools mirrors what happens in our communities. And, of course, we're watching the, the variant numbers. And last year, of course, a huge driver for us was just the, you know, the large number of cases and our whole notification process. But that will be changed this year. So I think it will be an adjustment in terms of, you know, parents and the community getting used to, to seeing fewer notifications. Again, just kind of learning to live with covid and I think beyond that, taking things slowly in September, like it's uh, one of the things I, I'm not sure people really realize is that, you know, while the province moved to a new step on July 1st, school districts did not, right? Like we were still under the old rules. And so for us, this September 7th with the new rules brings back um, a whole new set of rules for us that we haven't lived with through the summer. Like our summer school where we had 12,000 students was still under the old rules. So it's going to be an adjustment to get going in September. And how have you been working to kind of prepare schools for that? I think one of the key pieces of course is, of course, uh, interpreting the new guidelines. Um, to give you an example, uh, the guidelines say when you, you're now permitted to gather um, up to 50 people or 50% of capacity in a room, room, whichever is greater. So typically in opening week, schools would be holding grade assemblies or you know, multi-grade assemblies um, and lots of meeting with people. And um, what we've said to people is, hey, let's take it slowly at the, at the board office, for example, where I work. We've said, let's just go. 50% capacity in our rooms overall. Like, let's not have meetings of two or 300 people bringing together. Um, it's going to be, we want to welcome volunteers and parents back into our schools and onto site, yet they still have to sign in and all those pieces. So again, just getting people used to a new set of routines. And it, for it, students, I, I, anyway, so just want to say for students, I know they're looking forward to being able to see their friends. I'm sure, right? No more cohorts for the kids and keeping exactly. kids happy is, is key here. But I'm just curious, is everyone back to work then in person at the board offices? Yes, they are. Yeah, we're we're back here. We're allowing uh, partial work from home, depending on the particular nature of the job. But everybody's back. Uh, I'm in my office this morning, and uh, you know we're we're meeting face to face starting last week, uh, where we again adjusted the capacity down and offered some hybrid meetings as a way to ease in ourselves and help us understand the new rules. How does that feel for you, Jordan? I mean, kids have to adjust, but adults have to as well. Yeah, it's very strange. I, I held my first meeting in over a year with principals and vice principals uh, on, I think it was August 26th. And just to be in a room with, a, in that case, a capacity of 300 in the room, but we only had 40 people. But just to meet people, talk to them, be able to interact, it was it was wonderful. And it reminded me of, of just what we miss when we don't meet face to face. Yeah. Is there a fine balance here, though? Because, you know, there's excitement of kids seeing each other, but we do still have to be careful. Absolutely. Uh, you know, part of the message is reminding people that 
you know, we're still in a pandemic. I, you know, I talk about it as life in our no, our new normal precautions, which is, you know, keep washing your hands, keep not touching your face. We know wearing masks, all of those pieces remain in place. I think what we've learned over the past year is the transmission of COVID is really between close contacts like your best friend so we still have to work to you know respect each other's distance and keep apart to whatever degree we can and see as always as we said for the last two years where uh, where COVID takes us as we head into the fall and the flu season. So for parents then um, Jordan when will they know if there's a problem at their child's school what is the process for letting them know? So the process begins with, uh, like, the contact tracing that health will do is no different. They will, you know, when there is a positive case, health will do their contact tracing. Uh, They will, if the person was infectious when they were at school, they would, uh, health will contact our school administration and, again, gather more information to continue the contact tracing. And and here's where the difference comes in, is that in last year, there would be a broad notification saying, hey, parents, you know, in your particular school, there was a case, don't worry, individuals who are at risk have been contacted. This year, it's the people who will be contacted are the only the people who have been deemed to be a close contact. So it might only be one or two people in a class, and there's no broader conversa- um, communication. And, and the new guidelines state that, that administration are not to notify staff or families unless directed to do so by the school health officer. So back to we know what happens in our schools is a reflection of the community. We know that when cases go up in our community that there are going to be more cases in our schools. And I think your, your question about what about parents... If you receive a letter, know that you have been deemed to be, uh, your child has been deemed to be a close contact, and so you should either, you know, you'll be asked to self-monitor or self-isolate. Can you see, though, that there might be some concerns from parents on that because they feel like, well, wait a minute, what do you mean I'm not necessarily going to be told? Yeah, there will be concerns for sure, and we would anticipate, you know, these uh, people will start firing up their own websites and trying to track things. So it, it's going, it's going to be another piece that's going to require some adjustment. And um, yeah, it'll be something we need to work through at the school level because if, you know, teachers teachers care about their kids and they're close with their kids, and we know that in some cases when teachers test positive, that they will want to tell their students. And exactly now they're now they're not able to do that. So it'll be interesting to see us work through that and and balance the need for parents to know uh, where there actually is a need for concern and also to just help people realize that, you know, it it really is part of our our world in the next year for sure. No kidding. And so if you really want teachers, obviously, to stay at home if they are not feeling well, uh, how did that work last year? And do you have enough substitute teachers for that? Uh, no, we, we never have enough substitute teachers, it seems. We we have an aggressive campaign to keep hiring and hiring as much as we can. That's a, a definitely a whole thread. But, you know, your comment, one of the last things I said to the administrator group last week was, if we want to keep COVID out of our schools, one of the first and most important things we can do is do not come to work when you have symptoms or you're sick, because we know, we know that people can be asymptomatic. But um, people have worked for 10 and 20 years that, hey, I, I've got a little bit of a sniffle, a little bit of a cold, I'll go into work. We're in a different place. So let's keep it out of our building and do do the things that each of us need to do to, to stay safe. Well, Jordan, I'll keep my fingers crossed that it goes well. And I know we'll be talking to you again. So thank you for your time. Okay, you're welcome. You take care. Have a good day. You too. That's Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School District Superintendent. So not only are kids and teachers, support workers heading back to the schools, as you heard them say, board staff as well, back in the office this week. That's the first time that has happened in more than a year. So adults, kids, everybody adjusting to this new reality. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We were just talking with Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School District Superintendent, about, you know, here we go, back to school. And in Surrey in particular, I think there is concern because Surrey as a school district was really hit hard last year by COVID, more outbreaks, more situations. And now with the Delta variant out there causing trouble, you know, obviously Surrey once again is going to be a place of concern. Teachers say they're disappointed in the what they see as a lack of safety measures announced by the government. But let's see uh, more about those concerns, see how that is impacting the school year. Joining us is Matt Westfall, president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Hi, Matt. Good morning, Timmy. All right, here we are again, right? We were just, yep. last time we talked to you was during the school year. Here we are again. How are you feeling about the school year ahead? Uh, I'm I'm really waiting to see how things are going to unfold because what we've seen in other jurisdictions that have opened schools in August is that they saw an increase in cases when kids went back to school, uh, especially with the Delta variant. Yet in BC, we seem to have gone backwards because we're having less protection in schools now than we did last year. And so what are teachers telling you? Uh, I I think there's so many questions they have, which they don't have answers to. And one example is in terms of contact tracing. Uh, there's People are really wondering, well, what information is going to be released? Because we know it's going to be less than last year, but we don't know exactly what. Uh, and the Surrey School District was a leader last year in being transparent about sharing information about exposure. Yeah. But they can only share the information that they have, and they're going to have a lot less. So that's we're worried about uh, for people knowing what's going on in the workplace and also for parents to be able to make informed decisions, uh, knowing what's going on in the school. Do you think what we saw last year was a lot of kind of parents, teachers sharing information on their own? Do you think we'll see more of that this year? I think we will, because that was a response early on to, say, Vancouver Coastal Health that wasn't sharing any information. And that's how it began. And then it took on a, a real momentum. And I think they're going to have to because there's going to be less information about how many cases there are in the school. And that, that is a concern because we think greater transparency actually will create greater confidence in the system. Matt, are you curious at all about like how many teachers are fully vaccinated at this point? Uh, I am. I, I believe it's very high. I, I know that when Surrey school teachers were able to get early access to vaccination, there's very enthusiastic uptake. People couldn't wait. They're so excited about that. So I, I don't have a number. That's something we're going to find out fairly soon. But I, I expect it's very high. Yeah. Is there a process underway to find out what the number is? Uh, not not right now, but uh, that's something we could survey members on. Right. Okay. Because I think that's, you know, we had a call earlier pointing out that really it's up to adults here, right, to try to protect the kids who can't get vaccinated. Absolutely. And that's, and that's why we're really concerned about the kindergarten to grade three level students who cannot get vaccinated. We don't know when, if ever, there will be a vaccine they can have access to. And no masks are being required by students at that level. And we think that's a big mistake by the public health officer. So what would you like, how do you think teachers should approach this in? What would you like to see happen? I, unfortunately, teachers are going to have to approach this in that they can't just rely on what public health authorities say to do. They have to do more. For example, and if you have a kindergarten to grade three class, you have to really strongly encourage them, hey, let's all wear masks, to keep everyone safe, to keep our families safe. That's sort of that strong encouragement. But if you have students who say, well, my parents say uh, you can't make me do it, well, they're right. And so it, it's unfortunate when it's classroom by classroom, if this has to be done rather than just a general rule. Right. So you feel that that's the position teachers, do they feel confident enough in their classrooms to say that, to say, hey, you know what, in our classroom this year, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to line up. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to wear masks. 
Well, I think they feel confident they can do that. What they maybe feel less confident in is will they get back up if they get uh, backlash from parents. And we, we certainly had teachers last year who felt that they were getting really strong reactions from parents saying, you can't tell us what to do, uh, who do you think you are, that kind of thing. So th- those things are inevitable. Oh, that sounds rough. Yeah, it, it really is when uh, everyone's just doing the best they can to keep everyone safe. That's, that does sound that way. Listen, Matt, best of luck, okay? Thank you very much. It's Matt Westfall, the president of the Surrey Teachers Association, talking about the ways in which they are going to be approaching the school year. And I think that definitely probably is the case, is that many teachers who do teach K-3 to will, you know, implement that on their own, say, these are our classroom rules. If you remember anything about elementary school, there's always classroom rules, right? Teachers have slightly different rules. And it'll be up to teachers to say, you know, in our classroom, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to have respect for each other and we're going to put our masks on because we need to keep everybody safe. Uh, And I know they're disappointed that they won't get the backup of an actual, you know, rule or regulation on that. But I'm sure many teachers, as Matt pointed out, will do that in their classroom or try to. Anyway, if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Would love to hear from parents, teachers, people with their kids heading back to school this week and how you're feeling about that. Is it stressful? Are you feeling okay about it? You know, simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. It is going to be an interesting couple of weeks and lots of very close eyes will be paid to the numbers, the COVID-19 numbers to see if they're, and well, I shouldn't say if, most likely we will see a bump, right? When people start socializing more like that. Also, if you headed back to work this week, like they did at the Surrey School District in actual offices, you know, people heading back to work, let us know what that's been like for you on top of juggling kids back to school too. So yeah, email me and let me know. Today, the other big news is that we'll get details about this whole vaccine card situation, presenting it if you want to do so many activities in this province. We're going to get a preview of that, how it might work coming up next. This is Mornings with Simi. Later today, around 2 o'clock, is when we will get the details on this whole vaccine card, how it's going to be implemented, because a week from now, we're supposed to have it ready to go, use it to get into so many things like restaurants, sports events, you name it, lots of indoor activities. So we're waiting to get those details. You'll hear them live, of course, on the Jill Bennett Show this afternoon. But we wanted to talk about what this might look like. So joining us is Dr. Horatio Buck, a UBC adjunct professor at the Division of Infection infectious diseases and an expert in vaccines. Dr. Bach, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank Uh, you for having me. Well, we'd love to have you here. Tell me, do do you like this idea of having to show this vaccine card? Definitely. I think it's very important because we know the Delta variant is highly transmissible. Even people double vaccinated, they can carry and transmit that. So uh, having the passport at least will reduce the transmissibility. And it's a proof of, of, of uh, a vaccination that people will feel more comfortable if you need to go to the cinema or theater or any activity. At least you know that people will go inside. They are fully vaccinated. So how do you think this might work then? Because I know I have lots of people who are concerned, who email me and who are worried about this process. Well, um, you know, I think it's not uh, very easy to implement this stuff, but uh, definitely will be. We know that uh, probably this by end of this week will be available uh, online, like uh, or on app where you can download your proof of concept that will be in your phone. So 
that will be in, in these events is someone that will check, show me your proof of uh, vaccination, and you go uh, in. So um, I think the, uh, by October 24th, something like that, is the time that uh, the, password, the password will work only if you are uh, double vaccinated. So right now it's one vaccine at least. And then um, I think it's, 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 it's very important. I know it, we expect that, you know, some, maybe some issues there uh, because people, you know, sometimes they, uh, they don't believe or they don't uh, uh, um, accept that. But definitely um, we have to understand that there are people that they, they want to be protected as well. Right. Is this a way, do you think, Dr. Bach, to make people think twice about where they are going and what they are doing? Oh, definitely, yeah. Because, you know, if, if it's something they say, okay, you need to have a double, double vaccination and you go to a hockey game, uh, you know that you cannot go. So we will go there, you will stay, uh, you know, you will wait to go in and they will say, oh, sorry, you cannot go inside. You know, definitely, I think also may motivate people they are reluctant to get the vaccine for different reasons to say, you know, that's the time to get the vaccine that, you know, is proven to be safe. So do we, then we know that works, right? Because since this announcement was made, more people are getting vaccinated. So there were people out there who might've just been too busy or didn't think they needed to get vaccinated. Exactly. We know that 93% of uh, people that are coming to the, the uh, infected or coming to the hospital, they are unvaccinated. It means that that's a proof of people that they, for X, Y reason, they don't get the vaccine. That's the time to get because most of people that are vaccinated is very rare. We're talking about 5 to 10%. They are uh, coming to the hospital or they are infected. So definitely it's working because most uh, high level of the population is already vaccinated and these people are protected. Okay, so it, it, does this work elsewhere, do you think, this idea of having to show your vaccination? Yeah, I think it's very important. And, the, you know, it's also for people they have kids as well below 12 years old because we know they are not protected and we have to respect these, these uh, kids or babies because... Uh, still, we don't see a huge increase of uh, hospitalization here in BC, but uh, US, for example, all the children in hospital are packed with kids with COVID-19. So that's a way we need to protect. And also, um, you know, we have to think there is a type of the population that is not vaccinated and we are putting them under a, 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 a issues that we don't know what is the long term for a kid, you know, what's happening with this disease, you know, can be very, very bad. And uh, definitely my feeling is the passport will work and will reduce the transmissibility because that's what we need. This special variant is highly transmissible compared to the original strain that we got uh, in the very beginning that doesn't exist anymore. So we have to make sure that we have this proof and, you know, to show. I think it's a great yeah. uh, decision. What do we know about how effective the current vaccines are against these variants? Well, um, it looks like it the, depends on the, uh, the time that you got the vaccine. For example, uh, we knew before the vaccine started that people they were infected with COVID-19, they, after um, four to six months, the level of protecting antibody that you generate as a normal process in your body start to be reduced. Now it's happening with the vaccine. So we have more and more data showing that people that they were double vaccinated after six months, we start to see cases of reinfections, although it's not the same severity 
as you are not vaccinated. So basically, we know this vaccine is working and the level of protection is reduced about 30% compared to the 85 or 90 that you get in the first stage. So it looks like there is a, a re reduction in the level of the antibodies and there is some issues with the connection between the immune system that we have that uh, for some reason for coronavirus is kind of a broken and definitely we will need a, a booster at some point. Yeah, how now they're talking like booster shot, like two booster shots. How how long does that have to go on? Do you think will we continually need a booster shot like it's a flu shot now? I think so that will be like that. Uh more important is that uh, definitely the booster shot um my my op in my opinion should be related to the delta variant because we are still using the vaccine that was used in the very beginning. And I understand that uh, the big uh, pharma companies that are producing that made some application. The problem is to change the sequence of the original strain of the virus to right. this variant, Delta variant, requires a lot of approval and data, clinical uh, analysis, and all this stuff that takes time. It's a few months, but definitely at some point we will need to work against the virus. So Delta coming is taking most of the population in the world. Okay, so let's do the vaccine right. against the Delta variant. And next year will come something else, and that will need to continue. And that we should t point out to people here, Dr. Bacchus, that's exactly what we do with the flu shot every year, isn't it? We, uh, we, exactly. we tweak it to address whatever is out there. Exactly. That's exactly what's going to, to happen. And uh, for the flu shot, we have enough time to make the vaccine because it's starting Every year starting in the area of Hong Kong, China, that's at the very beginning. And until we get this here, it takes in a, a few months. And that's the reason we have a um, time to make the flu, uh, the flu, uh, the new flu a shot or not. Depends. And probably in the future will be kind of a cocktail of different um, uh, vaccines, uh, flu shot, uh, sorry, a COVID-19 shot just to cover different variants. Yeah, fascinating. All right, Dr. Bach, thank you for your time. You are very welcome. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. A month ago, we started letting in fully vaccinated travelers from the United States for non-essential travel. Today is the day we are doing the same for international travelers. So what does that mean for the local tourism industry? Are they ready for that? Joining us now is Walt Judas, CEO of the BC Tourism Association. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Simi. How much of a difference did it make a month ago when the U.S. travelers were allowed to come in? Well, certainly it made some difference. I don't think we expected to see large volumes of people all at once suddenly flooding British Columbia uh, throughout the province. But uh, at the very least, we did see a lot of visitation, particularly in places like Victoria, the Metro Vancouver region, and certainly other parts of the province. But it's not like we were overwhelmed. I think the majority of people were coming here to visit friends and family, but definitely that was welcome news, as is today's uh, decision to reopen to international visitors. And what kind of a difference do you think today's change will make? Well, in the interim, at least in the short term, it will make some difference to be sure, but we have to remember that a large part of our season is already over. The, uh, the peak season normally starts in May, it ends in September, and as we had month-over-month -month, uh, extensions to the border closure, many people weren't certain whether this day would actually happen or not, so they chose not to book a vacation 
in British Columbia or in Canada. So, well, certainly there's pent-up demand. People will be coming, to be sure, likely to visit with friends and family. But as I say, much of the season is already over for those that rely on international visitors. And what has that been like kind of ramping back up? Where is the state of the industry in terms of having enough people to be open, to provide enough rooms? Well, that's the biggest dilemma I think that we have at present is there just are not enough people to fill the jobs that are available. And you probably saw that if you traveled throughout the province this summer, that many places uh, were either closed or only partially open or hotels had wings of their facilities that were shut down. Uh, The kind of service that you were receiving might have been a bit slow. It was clearly evident that the industry did not have enough people to fill the jobs that were available. And that's part of the problem going forward, too, particularly now in the fall. Things will slow down a bit, but those people are still needed to deliver the kinds of services and experience that people expect. So we've got a lot of work to do to bring people back into our sector. But there are other areas that need to ramp up, too. If you think about international visitation most of those people are arriving by air and we don't yet have full service routes at least to the degree that we had prior to the pandemic that will take a while to get going so there's lots of work still to be done to welcome international visitors but those that normally see guests from other countries are certainly prepared to welcome them today. So this has been a learning experience then do you think so are hotels still trying to ramp back up or are they learning to do more with less? Yeah, that's a very good question. It would really depend on the hotel and where it is. And we see, we saw pockets of the province again this summer, extremely busy, as you know, places in the Okanagan on the Island, the hotels have really had to do more with less and get by on the, the number of people that they had. And certainly Uh, what they were able to offer their guests and really temper expectations that people may have had for the kind of service that they had prior to the pandemic. That said, I think the vast majority did an excellent job. People were keen to travel again, and certainly uh, that travel will continue for the next couple of months. We'll see that wane as we head toward the winter time and, and, uh, Again, some businesses will shut down, but at the same time, I think that the industry has coped fairly well and is looking forward to rebuilding again, albeit much of the focus is on next year and not necessarily for the remainder of this year. Right. So is this just, do you think, the next couple of months, perhaps a learning opportunity? It is a learning opportunity, to be sure. We we need to see what type of guests that we get where they're coming from, what their expectations are, what they're most concerned about, what they're looking forward to. There's a lot of things that we can learn in the next couple of months that will bode well for preparation for next year. Lots to come on that, Walt. Listen, best of luck. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Simi. That is Walt Judas, the CEO of the BC Tourism Association. Today is the day, September 7th, that international travellers who have been fully vaccinated and meet some other requirements 
are allowed into Canada for non-essential travel. As you heard Walt say, though, I mean, we we allowed Americans to do that a month ago. It didn't result in a huge influx of people, mainly people to visit family and friends. I think that's probably what you're going to see with the international travelers, too. That idea of just plain old tourism, like I'm going to go check this city out because I've never been there and I'm going to wander around. I don't think that has come close to being something in people's minds of doing during this pandemic yet. There's nothing like, you know, pre-pandemic levels, people just wanting to go explore. But if they have a compelling reason to come here to visit people that they know, then that is probably what we're going to be seeing. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, busy day today for sure. We've been talking about back to school. We know that the vaccine passport press conference happening at two. We'll have those details for you on the Jill Bennett show. And oh, also, I should say congratulations to Trevor. Trevor was caller six. He wins our tickets to the HSBC Canada Sevens Rugby uh, Tournament, which is happening September 18th and 19th. So very exciting. We'll have more tickets to give away this week. So make sure you stay tuned for that. So yes, as I said, very busy day today. We have all that for you. Plus, we know that today is also the day, September 7th, that Canada is allowing international travelers to come to Canada. So we thought, let's check in with our travel expert, Claire Newell, now president of Travel Best Bets, about exactly how these new travel rules work. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Simi. You said that it's a busy day for news. Well, it's going to be a busy day at the airports as all the um, border services agents for the first time are seeing foreign nationals documentation. Uh, and, and that's difficult for them. And the airports, uh, so much so that the airports are actually asking people to get there early. And I, I, you know that I have kids that are in university. And yes. when my son was flying back east, even just a domestic flight, the airport was busy. Um, in the, the lineups were longer. And there's just a lot more. Um, and I do feel for all of the airlines because the airlines that are flying back to Canada, their staff have to check to make sure that everything's uploaded into that arrive can app before people uh, head back to Canada. So it's going to be busy for everybody, a lot to get used to for, uh, for Canada. Right. So have you seen a lot of interest then? Do you think flights are busier? Are people scheduled to arrive? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there have been, and there have been a lot of airlines that have actually increased the number of flights that they're flying between, particularly Canada and the U.S., because we know that as of August the 9th, Americans were able to come. So there's been um, a, a gradual increase in the number of people. First, it was Canadians who were fully vaccinated who could come in without the need to quarantine, then U.S. citizens, and now as of today, all foreign nationals they do have to be fully vaccinated. They still have to take that PCR test when they land and have to have uh, an approved vaccine. So either um, Moderna, Pfizer, J&J or AstraZeneca. But it's uh, it's we're definitely seeing an increase, of course, with the Delta variant. I think people are hesitant. We did see, a, you know, a bit of a rise in June, July. And then with the Delta variant, I mean, we have seen people just get a little more cautious and understandably mm-hmm. so. So and when it comes to airlines, though, are they even up and running close to a regular schedule? Well, all the airlines that I've been hearing around the world are are 
you know, finding it hard, first of all, to get their staff back, to get everybody, all the pilots retrained, uh, get their aircraft back in service. So there's, um, it's, it's a process for every step of the way. Even if you're, if you're going on board flights or you're, you're making calls to the airlines, long, long waits. Um, there's, you know, people being trained. It's tough because everyone was so at a, you know, a standstill for 18 months. So it's been very slow to start. So, You'll see some hiccups for sure, so be prepared, be really patient, but make sure your documents are all in order if you are planning to travel. I haven't traveled internationally myself, Simi. Um, My first trip will be actually on the 9th, so this coming Thursday, I'm actually flying for the first time internationally just to Arizona to see my daughter who's settling in for her master's degree. Okay, how does that feel? I'm nervous. Are you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's been a lot more steps to go through. On Wednesday, I'm doing my rapid antigen test. Uh, You only need to have that done. Actually, you can do it the day of, but within three days of flying down to the U.S. You actually don't need to show your proof of vaccination, but you do on the way back. So, I mean, I don't know anyone who'd want to quarantine for 14 days. So... I haven't used the Arrive Can app myself. You're actually stopped uh, at partway through until you're closer to, to heading back to Canada. So all of this steps, uh, booking a PCR test for my flight back, I literally have to do that two days after I land because I'm only there for such a short time visiting her. Right. So a lot more steps, a lot more cost. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm going to be flying with a N95 mask and taking all the precautions you're doing though exactly what walt judas just we talked to him about this at the tourism association he you're doing that though he said that he feels right now a lot of the tourists that we're getting and i put that in quotation marks are really there to visit family uh, or friends and so that is the the primary reason for travel these days yeah it really is a lot of people and they're flying yes they're flying on commercial flights um where the protocols are you know quite stringent. We've heard about that since quite early in the pandemic. They've really taken precautions. Nothing's really changed. Masks right through the process from airport on board the flight till you're out the door of the airport on the other side. But so many families have been separated because of this. And so there's a lot of people flying in to from wherever to see family here in Canada that they haven't. So that's a, that's the, the nice part about this story. Okay. And when they say international travelers, is that everybody but what are the requirements here like do you not have to have a vaccine that is accepted by health canada yeah that's what i mentioned you ha- you do have to have that's why, why i mentioned pfizer moderna johnson and johnson and astrazeneca you have to have that uh, your second shot by 14 days prior to coming into canada a pcr test taken within 72 hours of your flight and you have to have all of the uh, information including your vaccination record uploaded into ArriveCan. It's been the same for Canadians coming back to Canada. It's the same for any U.S. And now it's all foreign nationals. Of course, there's still a ban on direct flights from India in place until September September 21st. And remember that the Canadian government, if they feel that there's any issues, they can stop this whenever they need to. And and I'm sure they will if they feel that there's certain countries that they're they're nervous about. Right. So this, again, it sounds like it's going to be baby steps, right? Not a huge, huge influx of people right away. No, I I don't think so. I think like Walt said, I think it's a lot of people who are coming to see friends and family that they have it for a very long time. Okay. Is this something similar to what's happening in other countries, Claire? Or like, are we on par with other regions? We are. There are some countries that I've seen put in place uh, halts, basically like a... uh, 
traffic light system. That's what the UK is doing, you know, green, amber, and red. Um, we haven't seemed to, to do that. This is all foreign nationals. So it'll be interesting to see if we put in place halts for certain or stops from, from certain countries. But one of, uh, one of the things that I would have loved to have seen is what some countries have done, and that is require um, COVID-19 insurance so that we know that anyone coming would be covered for those costs. So um, a couple of little things that are a little different than other countries, but, um, you know, it, it's nice to see that we're opening. I just want to, I'm glad it's been a, a yeah. slow, slow approach. Boy, you're so right about the insurance issue, because I think anybody who's even considering traveling right now, all of a sudden you're not just clicking, I don't need insurance, thanks, and moving on. No. You're, no. you're really checking out your insurance policies now. Yeah, you're checking out your insurance policies and you're going through all the steps and costs of having to make sure you've got COVID tests, whichever type you need, wherever you happen to be traveling, in both directions. So added costs, added protocols. And please just remember, uh, for those who are planning to travel, even if you're going on a domestic flight, get there at least an hour and a half ahead of your flight. International passengers arrive at least three hours in advance. The lineups are long. All right, so that doesn't sound like it's improving anytime soon then. No, no, it's not. They've got to get used to looking at all of the uh, the test requirements and, and things. So that's new for it's going to be long at the border when you're coming back in and having those the, the border agents look at your, your documentation. It's just there's just going to be increased volume and the staffing issues, all of them, all of the steps, uh, it, it'll be long. Okay, so people should have patience. Lots of patience okay. to me. <laughs> you too, Claire. And listen, best of luck. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. I'm yes. going to have it all on Instagram on at Travel Best Bets if anyone wants to follow along from test to test to airports to flights. <laughs> okay, yeah, I am very curious about that. Claire, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi.